Habakkuk chapter 1, if you'll stand uh, for the reading of God's word. We're not going to read all the way down to verse 4. We'll just read verses 12 through 14 to get us started this evening. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. This is God's word to his people. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devour a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? This is God's word to his people. Let's go ahead and open again this evening with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you tonight uh, aware that your word is more powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so when we uh, begin to look at it, study it, uh, try to seek to understand it, we need to be careful because we're playing with something that's uh, alive and, and powerful. And we want to make sure that we understand your word rightly. We want to make sure we get it right. We want to make sure that we're living in a way that pleases you ultimately, first and foremost, because you are uh, the, the highest person that we will ever give an account to anything that we do. So may everything that we say and do tonight uh, please you. May you be honored. May you be exalted. And may we leave here uh, changed to be more like you. And Father, for the person who might be sitting in here who does not know you, has never trusted you as their Savior, does not know what it means to be a, a Christ follower, I pray that you would convict them of their need uh, for you and draw them to yourself, and they would trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins. We ask all these things in your Son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, we often struggle to reconcile difficult truths together. Uh, this uh, means that at times we're going to ask hard questions. Sometimes, though, these hard truths can be silly questions uh, that don't seem to, they seem to live on opposite sides of the spectrum. They seem to not uh, be able, something to reconcile with. Um, some baseball fans uh, may uh, wonder how to reconcile the truth with the fact that for so long the Chicago Cubs were one of the worst baseball teams in the world, and for some reason in 2016, the Lord allowed them to win a World Series. And now I sent them back into exile. So it's kind of like the nation of Israel is the Chicago Cubs, maybe. Um, I don't know. Probably not. I think they're just destined to wander alone aimlessly in the desert. But you may that's, that's kind of a silly kind of hypothetical question or, you know, why do we uh, park cars on a driveway? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you try and reconcile difficult truths. But reality is, most of us aren't given a lot of time uh, to these. Now, I will say, if there is any time in my life where I've had to have difficult conversations about silly things, it's been while being a college pastor. Like, for those of you who were around a, a little while ago, I think there was a, a great debate over whether or not a hot dog is actually a taco. And... Um, I mean, to be honest with you, the opinions got fast and they got heated. Uh, you would have thought that we were voting on the next president of the United States the way some people were handling that conversation. So just in those types of difficult reconciling truths, and we can uh, discern that and talk about that more later. The other thing when we start talking about difficult truths is not necessarily 
those silly questions, it's actually the questions that honestly plague us. Like, why does there seem to be so much evil in the world? Why do young people get cancer and die? Why do uh, seemingly healthy people uh, have terrible things happen to them? Uh, I was six years old, and uh, a girl at our church who was a, a senior in high school, was about to be a senior in high school, it was during the summertime, uh, had gotten up early in the morning to meet a group of church friends at our church to go to Adventureland in Des Moines, about a two and a half hour drive. And as she and her mom were uh, driving in to uh, meet the church and go to Adventureland for the day, uh, a drunk driver uh, at about 5.36 o'clock in the morning plowed through a four-way stop and struck their vehicle, setting it on fire. Sarah died instantly, and a passerby dragged her mom with third-degree burns out of the car. This is not somebody who was committing evil. This is somebody who wanted to go and spend the day with a group of people in their youth group at a theme park. And we wonder, how do we reconcile these truths? And I think a lot of times we find ourselves going, how in the world am I supposed to reconcile these things? But surely the people of God, the, the pastors, the preachers, the theologians, the seminary professors, they never struggle with these things. It never causes them any doubt. It never causes them any worry. It never affects them. They, these religious people have it together. And what the book of Habakkuk teaches us, if it teaches us nothing else, but though it teaches us much more than this, is that even the most theologically sound, chosen men of God, prophets sent to deliver messages, struggle to reconcile why is this happening. Now we know the answer to the book of Habakkuk's question is, the reason why this is happening partially is because of the sinfulness of the, the people, the sinfulness of Judah. They continually worship other gods rather than the one true and living God. And now they're reaping the consequences of their sin. But even when we deal with the consequences of sin, we're still sometimes asking ourselves, why is this happening? And sometimes it's not even as the consequence of sin. Remember, Jesus tells us when uh, a blind man is approached uh, and there's the religious leaders are, are, are standing there and they ask Jesus, this man has been born blind. So whose sin is it responsible for? His parents or his? And Jesus' answer is neither. It's not a result of his parents' sin. It's not a result of his own sin. It's a result of living in a sin-cursed world. And so that when I came through here and I healed him, you all would know I am the one true and living God. I am the Son of God. And by doing this, give evidence to the fact that I am Christ. It's not a result of him being sinful or his parents being sinful. It's a result of living in a sin-cursed world. So sometimes evil happens because we live in a sin-cursed world and we're affected by sin. Beware, friends, of those who come to you telling you that every great disaster that is ever perpetrated in this country is a result of some sort of egregious sin that people have committed. Beware of those people. They are not prophets. They are not priests. They are not kings. 
They're not the son of God. They're not to come and pronounce judgment on America or on any other country. So beware of teachers who will tell you COVID happened because of this or that or the other thing. Beware of people who say the, this hurricane has come upon them because they don't live for Christ. Beware of those people, for they do not speak of God. They are not speaking the things of God. Habakkuk helps us to understand it's okay to wrestle with difficult truth. So, first and foremost, we have to deal with this problem. Two things tonight, keeping it simple, trying to operate according to the flow of the passage. Uh, the, the book of Habakkuk, this particular passage, we open with new questions. Look at verse 12 again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Habakkuk opens this particular a section of questioning by going and questioning God's character. He says at the beginning of verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? In other words, through my life, God, I have been told and I have believed these truths about who you are. I have believed in who you are and who you claim to be and who you say you are even though all of these things swirl around us. Babylonians are closing in. But aren't you supposed to be this way? Aren't you supposed to be from everlasting? But then notice what he does. He follows that question with a statement. He questions who God is and then reminds himself of who God is. He says, we shall not die. In other words, God is sovereign over this. He's watching over us. Even though this judgment is going to be pronounced on us, even though we're going to experience these difficult things, God is still sovereignly in control. We uh, look at verse 13, and we see Habakkuk saying this about God. He affirms the truthfulness of who God is. You are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. So again, another statement about who God is. Remember, when we studied the attributes of God and we talked about God as being holy, that no sin can enter into his presence. And Habakkuk stresses that this is happening. Yet you allow the Babylonians to uh, bring judgment upon us. But notice again, even as he seems to alternate out these truths where he ultimately lands. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Again, asking a question, why? Why do you allow this to happen? Why do you make men, verse 14, like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? And now in, in the following verses, 15, 16, and 17, what Habakkuk is actually going to do is he's going to wrestle with the truth of who God is going to use to bring judgment by means of using the Babylonians. He wrestles with it. 
man, I am so tired of clean Christianity. You're like, wait, whoa, whoa. We're all about being clean around here. Like, right? Wash your hands. Cover your face. You know, do the song and dance. Stand so many. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the clean Christianity that is promised to so many people. Follow Christ. Give your life to Christ. Trust in Christ. And everything is going to just be nice. You know, you have a good job. You have two and a half kids. Nice middle class house. If you want a picket fence or not, you can, I mean, that kind of comes with the starter American dream Christianity version of the house. You can have nice cars. You know, nothing too crazy. You can drive a nice newer model car. Have some money in a bank account. If you're into, you know, whatever, you can be a member of this club or that club or go here and do this. And you just live this comfortable, cozy little life that never experiences any difficulty. There is so much Christianity that is sold today along those lines. And it is just utter garbage. Just utter garbage. And I am sick and tired of it. And you're like, wow, this is real. Some of you are like, maybe it's time to go. Like, he seems rather frustrated. I am. Because life continually kicks the teeth in on people because of the sinfulness of the world that we live in. And we're just supposed to act like everything's going to be okay. I'm just so sick of that. Detached from reality. Detached from the truthfulness that, like, just bad things are not going to happen. I think we're all old enough to know that that might be cute for somebody else, but I'm telling you, there are so many people who believe that that's the lie that you have to believe in in order to be a Christ follower. And I'm just telling you, the Bible says that's not true. The Bible says that there is a God who is ruling and reigning, and yes, we will have to wrestle with difficult truths. He says, verse 15, they take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net. Habakkuk is speaking about the Babylonians. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet, because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? In other words, how long are you going to let these guys run around? I think there are a lot of us sitting in the room tonight. We're asking this question. God, how much longer are you going to let this stuff go on? Mr. Sovereign, Mr. Eternal, Mr. I look at everything, I see all, I know all, I'm in control of all things, I'm reigning and ruling. And we're looking around going, it doesn't look like you're reigning and ruling today. I am so sick of Christians who will not own that that is what they feel. I'm not saying that emotions should run your life. I think emotions are incredibly deceptive and will lead you down dangerous paths if you do not speak to them. Paul Tripp says, no one speaks to you more than you do. So if you don't speak to emotions, they will run your life and it will run you amok. But I am sick and tired of everybody kind of walking into church. I'm like, hey, how's it going? Yeah. How's your life? Wonderful. Everything's great. You get in the car. I'm like, I hate my life. It's terrible. It's the worst thing I've ever experienced. And I don't even know why I come to this place. Nobody even cares. They don't even know that there's anything going on. Well, maybe the reason why nobody knows that anything's going on is because you keep going into church. Hey, yeah, sure. It's great. Wonderful. Look like ridiculousness. 
we got in this weird little trap in American evangelical Christianity where coming to church means painting a fake smile and saying, oh, everything's wonderful. It's like the guy in the commercial years ago. He's out. He's got a nice house, boat, cars, the whole nine yards. And he's mowing the lawn. He's got his on a ri- nice riding lawnmower, big smile on his face. And he's like, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. That's how Christians come to church. Acting like this is not a reality that they're facing. That there aren't some hard things that we're dealing with. Habakkuk is at least honest enough. And this is what God bless God. He gives us a Bible with honest people. Not cleaned up people. And we've got to be real careful that we don't clean up the Bible and make it nicer and neater and cleaner and more acceptable than what's actually going on. There are real jacked up people in the Bible, just like you, who need all of God and everything that he is to get through even the most basic of days. Think about Abraham. Homeboy is told, I'm going to be a great nation. It's going to come from me. I'm getting old. Things aren't happening. His wife says, well, if God's promised this to you, he must be able to bring it about. So why don't you sleep with our servant? Because that's a good plan for success. And look at the haywire that comes out of it. From sin. From not being obedient to God. And we, we read the Bible and we're like, Abraham's just this wonderful guy. Never screws up. The dude slept with his wife servant. Who does that? People used by God. It's not an excuse to sin. See, sometimes where we get ourselves in trouble is we look in the Old Testament and we start looking at what everybody's doing and they're running amok and they're just out of control people. We're like, see, we can be out of control. No, they're not given as examples of, you know, you can just kind of live however you want and God will still use it anyway. No, they're given as examples so that when you read the Bible, you're not like, these people are so unattainable. We read the Apostle Paul, oh my gosh, this guy's amazing. 13 letters in the New Testament? Like, he's like, PhD in theology? Like, he's amazing. Yeah, except prior to his conversion, he was beating up and killing people. Real role models. I love Saul. Killing people. Look at what happens when the gospel transforms a life in the scriptures. Their lives are radically different. And we read through the the Old Testament, and sometimes I think our temptation is to to clean everything up and and to try and act like we don't wrestle with anything, and there's nothing difficult that is facing us. Can I just tell you? Church of Jesus Christ is a safe space. And I don't mean a safe space where you're not confronted with any difficult truth. That's what safe space in 2020 has come to mean. This is a safe space in the fact that Christ tells all you who are weary and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. This is a safe space to know I can deal with the difficult things of life. And there are people around who will bear every burden and fulfill the law of Christ. This is a safe space where you can ask questions. And not just, can God create a burrito so hot that he himself cannot touch it question. 
but the actual legitimate questions that are plaguing your life. This is a place where it's okay to wrestle with what's going on and not be judged for asking a question that might be difficult to answer. Our college ministry exists for college students of every shape, size, color, and creed who may or may not get what it means to follow Christ and may have a ton of questions about what it means to follow Christ. And if we're not careful, this becomes this cute little clean place where any of the hard college students are like, yeah, we'll deal with you on campus. Don't bring that stuff here. No, bring it on. Let's deal with the hard stuff that's facing us. Let's deal with the things that are plaguing our culture and society about marriage, about equality, about gender, about sexuality, about who God is and what it means to follow him and serve him. Let's tackle and wrestle those questions because God's word says that's okay. Provided we have the right attitude. Right? 90 degree angle here for you. Look at what Habakkuk says. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And this wraps up the question section. This is where he comes to. This is where Habakkuk, he's wrestling, he's dealing with all these difficult things. And this is what Habakkuk says. I will stand my watch. In other words, I, I'm going to get up like, um, this is a terrible illustration, uh, but it's the only one that is in my brain when I thought about this. So forgive me, and if this offends you, then I'm sorry. But think of it in terms of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like, he's up there, they're, they're standing to watch, go away, or we'll come back and make fun of you again. Some of you will never get this because you've never seen this movie, even though it's wonderful. Uh, go away. And he's standing guard up on top of the castle and looking out. This is what Habakkuk is saying. Basically, Habakkuk says, I've asked all these questions. I know that God's got to give me an answer. I'm going to get my lawn chair. I'm sitting up on the top, and I'm just waiting. Give us an answer, and I'm going to sit here and wait for your reply. I will set myself on the rampart, and I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when what? I am corrected. Maybe my attitude is wrong about this. Maybe my thoughts are not right about this. Maybe God's word has to correct me here. Maybe God has to correct me here. And I am going to be careful to watch what I will say because I might need to be corrected. Habakkuk wrestles with all of these difficult things, but ultimately submits himself to sitting under the lordship of Christ. And what you say goes. What you say goes. What your answers are are sufficient. Not what I hope them to be, not what I, I want them to be, but what you say goes. Look, there are a lot of things that will face you in life that are not easy to deal with and are difficult to wrestle with. You know, I, I can't help but think about it. You know, almost, it, it, time flies, but almost, uh, it will be two years this November when God took one of our students. I, I still don't understand why. I still wrestle with that. I still struggle with it. I, I don't understand why. You know, we wrestled for for. for two and a half, three and a half years to, to even let people in on the inside of 
why God wasn't going to allow us to have our own biological children. Because he had our children marked out before us, and he had a way of them coming to us. One that's difficult still to reconcile, and one that we've been granted to know the answer to. Harper's the answer to that question. This is your child. This is your kid. This is the way we wanted your family to start. That's an answer. You're not always given that answer. And just like Justin, who was taken from us seemingly too, too early, you're not given an answer of why that's allowed to happen. So sometimes in life, we're going to get the answer, and other times we're not. So we've got to be like Habakkuk and say, I'm going to wrestle with it, but ultimately I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust that you're sovereign. You know what you're doing. You've got a plan. I believe what you're doing. I believe what you're saying. I believe it. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't know it. But you're good. Even when it doesn't seem like it. And then I want to ask you this. Are you willing to be corrected by God and respond correctly? Responding to correction. How we're corrected by God and how we respond to it ultimately says more about what we really believe about who God is and what he expects from us than just merely getting the correction. Anybody can receive correction. It's another thing to allow that correction to correct you. There are a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'm open to the Lord rebuking me and changing me and molding me into the image of Christ. They even pray it. But then when it comes around in time to to implement the changes that God is expecting, they're like, no, I'm not doing that. That's not, that's not what I signed up for. So ultimately, here's the response we read in verses 2 through 4, and this is the second point. And it's a shorter point because it's a simpler statement. It's a call to wait. It's a call to wait. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on ta tablets. Habakkuk said, we've, we've gone through this before. That he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but the end of it, it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So Habakkuk spends the better part of those verses questioning, ultimately arrives at a correct a point where he's willing to be corrected. And the Lord responds with a different direction. Wait for the appointed time. Because it'll come. It will come. And ultimately what has to happen here is something that we all wrestle with, if we're honest. We can all be honest, even if we don't raise our hands or fill out a survey, we can all honestly say, that this is difficult. The confidence that Habakkuk must show is in the Lord and in his timing and in his way. We claim to have confidence in God and his way, but more often than not, we get upset with the timing when it doesn't go our way. Notice verse 4 here. Proud people have no standing before God because they trust in themselves. They wait in themselves. The just, however, or Christ followers, trust in God and live by their faith in Him. Some of you are like, I did not. The first half of this is bad. And now this is even worse. The first part is, I've got to be okay, even when I wrestle with ultimately 
allowing God to correct and change and mold me and make me into his image. I've got to be okay with that, even when I don't and can't reconcile difficult truths. But then the doubling down is even more difficult. You've got to trust and wait in God and his timing and his ways. Habakkuk wants an immediate answer. How is this going to get better? How are we going to avoid the Babylonians? And how is life going to get back to normal? God says, judgment is coming, and it'll come when it comes, and until it comes, the just man, the just woman will live by their faith. Their faith in what? Their faith in God. We may not understand all that is happening in the world around us. We may not understand what's happening in our lives or why God's allowing us to go through certain things. We cannot cannot, though, allow that to pull us off of living for him in every moment of every day, just because we don't understand the timing. I know there are a, a lot of you who this, I mean, let's just, let's be honest again. 18 to 25 is the worst time of your life, because you get woken up to the reality that adulting is hard, and the answers don't come when you think that they should. You have to start paying bills, you have to start living a certain way. The expectations change. You're making major life decisions. You have no money. And then when you have no money, you find out that there is a way for you to have less than no money. It's just called college. It's just it's one big racket to take away the lack of money that you already lacked and lacking money. Just think about that for a second. How is it possible for us to have any less money than we do right now? Answer, go to college. soul-sucking amount of money that's just taken away from you. And then you're like, I'm broke, have no money, actually owe more than anything that I have and worse. I'm actually worth more not living than I am alive. And I see somebody that is fairly attractive and maybe together the two of us who have nothing and less than nothing and both are worth combined more than dead than we are alive can somehow eke out an existence together on nothing. That's why we often tell people, if you wait until you can financially afford to be married or have kids, you will be neither a parent nor married. It's true. We trust in God's timing to bring about these things because we know that in trusting him to provide all things, he is working everything out for our ultimate good. And even though this is difficult, and, and guys, I just want to just, maybe it's the Lord's providence and kindness to you um, in the midst of, of these days that we're going to go away for a week so Paul can come in and preach something just a little, maybe a little bit brighter. Because if you think that things are going to get brighter at this point in uh, chapter 2, they're not. Uh, we're about to experience five low oracles, and you can look up what that is on your own time. It's not pleasant, it's not good, and it's not, oh, bright and cheery and wonderful. God's like, here's some rainbows and unicorns. No, it's going to turn darker before it turns brighter. And Habakkuk actually gives us what, in my estimation, the perfect illustration of what it means to live in a hostile world and culture where everything seems to be imploding and burning around you and still have confidence ultimately in who God is and what he is doing. Because each and every one of us are going to go through times in our lives where we ultimately believe that about our lives. I would just ask a simple question in closing. 
who ultimately are you putting your confidence in? You putting it in yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make your life better, easier, wealthier, nicer and cleaner? Or are you putting your confidence in God, the only one who can save you from your sins, the only one who can transform and radically redeem you and save you and make you into his image and rescue you from a life separated here on this earth and in the life to come, separated completely from him? Or are you trusting in God alone that he will be your rock, your fortress, your high place? I'm stealing language from the end of the book of Habakkuk. Trust in God with confidence and rooted in Him. We don't know what tomorrow brings. I get to preach a sermon for two Sundays evenings from now. Concluded with Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. Can't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble to deal with tomorrow. And all the troubles of tomorrow are resting in God's hands. So I'm going to worry about what God's called me to do today. I'm going to have confidence in him that he's going to 